Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening and welcome to this LSE public lecture hosted by the Department of Economic History at the London School of Economics. Our speaker this evening is Professor Jan Lukasen, who will be talking about The Story of Work, A New History of Humankind, um, based on his recent book published by Yale University Press, um, which I'm sure we'll get quite a good number of plugs for. I certainly hope so. My name is Patrick Wallace. I'm a professor in the Department of Economic History and the current head of department. Um, The department is uh, one of the largest and most active centers uh, for research and teaching in economic history in the world today. And because of this work has always been central to the questions that we ask about the economic past. Work is also obviously ever more central, increasingly central to a series of political and economic debates about the world today and where it's going in the future. As I'm sure you're aware, we're experiencing a massive shock to work. Welcome to what has become my office. Um, We're also in a period where technological change is raising questions about the location and organization of different kinds of labor, with a huge amount of uncertainty about how artificial intelligence, for example, might change how we live and work um, in years to come. So our old assumptions about supervision and management, about careers and the role of hard work and identity have all been under pressure, open for, open for debate, shall we say. Um, coronavirus is not the first shock. Artificial intelligence is not the first technological change that have uh, affected the nature of work, the delivery of work in fundamental ways. And there can be no one better to tell us about how these fit into the long history of work than Jan Lukasen. Jan is an emeritus professor at the Free University of Amsterdam and former director of the International Institute for Social History. He's written extensively about global labor history in a whole range of places and regions of the world. Just looking at what he's done recently, it covers everything from India to the Ottoman Empire and Europe. Um, So this book, the book he's talking about today, is in some ways the culmination of decades of scholarship turned into, uh, I think, what's an incredibly engaging book that opens this up to a wide readership. Um, So Jan, Welcome to LSE. Uh, we look forward to hearing uh, what you have to tell us this evening. And let me hand over the mic over to you and invite you to start your lecture. Thank you. Hello, um, hello, Patrick, and uh, welcome, everybody. You can hear me? Yes, we yeah? can hear you fine. Yeah. OK, fine. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I'd love to come to London from Gouda, where I'm living in the Netherlands. But unfortunately, we have to do it this way. And I'll do my best to make it a lively presentation about, indeed, my book, The Story of Work, A New History of Humankind. Um, it's, a, it's a rather um, uh, fat book, uh, I must confess. Um, so I've uh, chosen to uh, break it into three. Uh, first, I'll talk about my approach, because how, uh, and that has been, of course, a big challenge for myself too, how to organize the history of work uh, of, the, the, of the world uh, for the entire uh, human history. Uh, so I'll talk about uh, concepts uh, that I've chosen, uh, space, time, interdisciplinary uh, uh, approach, and also the way I have present, I've chosen to present my results. So that's the first half of the uh, of the presentation. 
then there will be a story in seven league boots. So from the beginning until now, which of course will be uh, very superficial, but at least it will give you an impression of what the book is about. And then I want to go back to the starting point and to say something about the essence of work as I see it. Uh, so first about my approach and about the concepts, because I had to uh, define for myself, of course, what do I mean by work, which type of human activity can be considered to be work, which should be included, which should not be included, and also talking about human beings uh, performing work and defending their interests, how do they do it? Then about space, it will be about, uh, uh, well, the choice, what the implications of the choice to write a global history and which is of course, uh, uh, can be uh, uh, contrasted to what normally happens in labor history, which is rather Eurocentric or maybe Atlantocentric. Uh, then uh, about the time frame, and then about interdisciplinarity, because uh, when you write labor history for the uh, last few uh, centuries, of course, you can uh, depend on written sources. But if you start 700,000 years ago, you cannot, and you need to use uh, the evidence from archaeology, prehistory, anthropology, paleogenetics, and paleolinguistics. Um, and of course, I had to make some choices how to present the results of my research for a wider audience. Because I, um, uh, of course, I want to serve my, my peers and everybody in economic history and social history and labor history, but my pretension is to go beyond that because in the end, um, and that's, that's uh, an advantage of this uh, topic, we all work or have worked or know people who have worked. We can compare our own work with that of our uh, parents, of our grandparents. So uh, in a way, we are all experts. And then addressing experts in a serious way, I had to, to choose how to do it. And I've chosen for a chronological narrative. Uh, although there are academic discussions to be found in a preliminary note and also in the annotation. But the book has not been organized in a way that I say, uh, Professor A says this, Professor B says that, and I think, et cetera, et cetera. That's not the way I've chosen to organize the stuff. Well, the first uh, con set of concepts has to do with work. What is included and what is not? And I think this photographs tells it all. This woman is at work. Eh? She's not being paid, uh, uh, but she definitely here in Amsterdam around 1950, she is at work. So I've chosen to um, have um, an, an inclusive uh, um, definition of work. And uh, if we define very simply labor relations as the relations we entertain uh, with other people while working, work in the household is at the center of labor relations, according to me. And I'll uh, talk more about that uh, later. Um, 
there are several uh, discussions uh, 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 about what work is, but I've chosen one uh, um, definition by the American sociologists, uh, son, Chris, and father, Charles Tilly, Chuck Tilly, um, who said in 1998, work includes any human effort adding use value to goods and services. And the, you may read the rest of the definition, but I'd like to read out the second part because I think that's very essential and a very concise formula of what is uh, at stake. Only a prejudice bred by Western capitalism and its industrial labor markets fixes on strenuous effort expended for money payment outside the house as real work, relegating other efforts to amusement, crime and mere housekeeping. Mere housekeeping, as you see again on this enigmatic photograph from Amsterdam. Um, that means that uh, um, the work within the household, which I call reciprocal work, and you see it uh, um, at the bottom of this uh, figure, uh, the first figure in my book, reciprocity starts from the, uh, the beginning of our human history, and it goes on up until now, and the Tillys even estimate that most work done in the world is still reciprocal labor within the household. Um, the figure also shows not only the time frame from 700,000 years ago, but also how I've uh, distributed this over the chapters. And then you see that the second type of uh, labor relation that I uh, distinguish in chapter two and chapter three and, and up until now is independent production, first and foremost of peasants, and then come artisans and all kinds of other uh, uh, entrepreneurial work without using wage labor. Because if you do, then you are of course an employer and employers also work by the way, uh, but the earliest employers you uh, find are those uh, that employ slaves, and that precedes very, uh, very much the emergence of labor markets. As you can see here, uh, according to my estimation, it started some 3000 years BCE. And then you have something which sounds uh, um, a bit complicated, tributary redistribution, but uh, I'll explain that later, which is the form uh, uh, in which uh, the, uh, uh, the, the surpluses of work were redistributed before there were markets. And that's a, a very important, at least for me, it was also a very important uh, uh, discovery in a way that that is part and parcel of the history of work. So, so far, very briefly about the central concepts that I've chosen. So my definition of work, 
and the, uh, a kind of taxonomy of labor relations. And uh, here you see prevailing labor relations uh, um, uh, uh, during our uh, human history. And you see also that they don't exclude each other. Uh, they, they can coincide. And at this uh, very moment, we see that the, the most important labor relations are reciprocity within the household, then employer-employee relationships and independent production. Um, a second set of uh, concepts uh, uh, have to do with what I call working strategies. These are strategies, attempts to maintain or improve working conditions. And that, that uh, pertains both to independent producers and to uh, wage uh, uh, workers, and even to, um, uh, to unfree laborers. And for me, the, this, the most important distinction is between, on the one hand, individual and household strategies, um, which in uh, the conventional labor history do not receive enough attention, I think, and that is geographic mobility or migration and social mobility. Um, and what I mean is that most people who do not like the situation they are in or who fear a deterioration do not immediately uh, um, try to organize uh, uh, other sufferers and uh, uh, start collective action. No, they take private action. Eh? They try to, uh, to be good mates with the boss or they try to, uh, try to find another boss or to migrate or whatever. And I think that is much, much more important than what, well, I might say that the majority of labor history is concerned with, that is collective action. So that is the second one. I'm not saying emphatically, I'm not saying that this is unimportant or that the one is more important than the other. I'm only saying that there is much more that when we talk about the agency of workers, uh, as, as it sometimes is called, that there is also much more than collective action. However, as I say, collective action was important is still very important and it has, and that should be uh, uh, underlined, it has a long history, uh, much longer than what you see on the right slide, the uh, classical trade unions, but also what you see on the left side, left hand side, uh, the guilds. Uh, and this is a guild procession in Istanbul in 1597, if I'm not mistaken. And here you see the, the tailors, a procession of the tailors parading before the Sultan. Um, so these are my main conceptual uh, uh, choices that I've made. And now uh, as to the space, um, I want, uh, I've tried uh, a global approach. Um, one example here is uh, I've uh, done my best to include Indian history, which also has the advantage that you also can talk about caste. Uh, 
um, as one way of organizing work as caste is, uh, um, includes uh, hereditary work, uh, specific types of work within a certain uh, um, uh, group. Uh, another example is uh, uh, labor in Japan, but I could have uh, could have made many more slides. Of course, South America, Africa, etc. I've tried uh, systematically for each um, development that I found in one part of the world to see whether I could find similar or totally different uh, developments in other. Uh, part of the world. So it means that there is not that I've tried to evade the trap. I, of course, I don't know whether I've been successful, but to try to evade the trap that I say, well, there is one rule, that's the development of Europe. And then let's see whether the others follow the rule, yes or no. And uh, uh, um, so that that I've tried to avoid that and see uh, to, to really uh, take a global um, uh, approach, which, by the way, meant, of course, that I had to read a lot about China and about Japan, about which, which I knew nothing, let alone about the Mayas and the Aztecs, etc., etc. Anyway, um, then the time frame. If we start from the beginning of what is considered now to be the uh, human history, 700,000 years ago, uh, the implication is that 98% of this history of human work consists of hunting, gathering, and preparing food. And um, um, I suggest and I think that this has uh, very important implications about how we consider work and uh, what we think about remuneration of work. Um, it, it is hardly conceivable. I think that if this uh, is uh, uh, nearly our uh, total history, that this has, does not have implications for what happened later on. And what I see as the, uh, uh, the uh, characteristics of uh, uh, work as organized among hunter-gatherers. And of course, there I have to depend on what, uh, on the one hand, primatologists and on the other hand, especially anthropologists say. So the anthropo anthropological uh, analogy that uh, the main characteristics are uh, that it is work is organized in small units of a handful or maybe a few dozen households at the maximum uh, who work closely together, including childcare and, and mind you, uh, as household work is at the center of the definition that should be also, uh, should be taken seriously. But also because uh, within such small groups, social control is feasible, it means that you can distribute the gains on an egalitarian basis, balancing efforts and remuneration. You know exactly who is doing his or her best and who is not. It's not that you are going to, at least that's what the anthropologists say, it's not that you're going to starve somebody, the lazy ones, but they do not get as much as others. 
but efforts are being remunerated. Well, then uh, here you see uh, uh, an example of this long time history and what I had to, uh, to talk about. This is the spread of modern humans uh, uh, over the world from Africa to the uh, other parts of the world, just as an example. And uh, also for myself, because sometimes it's mind boggling the, the period you are talking about and the space you are talking about. So I've drawn a few uh, uh, models where I try to uh, uh, combine space and time. Uh, space you can see on the left-hand side and uh, down there is the, the, the time axis, but also interdisciplinarity because you see their evidence as uh, language, um, uh, uh, paleogenetics, uh, cave paintings, uh, Venus figurines, um, the change of skin color, and so on and so forth. So um, I, I, I needed to, to draw such figures for myself, but I hope they are also helpful for the, for the readers. Uh, here's another one for a uh, somewhat later period between 5000 BCE, uh, uh, where you see how in different parts of Eurasia uh, civilizations developed when mining was, so to say, invented, when we see the first enslavements, uh, when we see corvée labor, and so on. Then finally, as I said, I had to make thoughts about how to present all this. And I've chosen, as I mentioned just uh, a few minutes ago, not to, uh, to um, uh, render the many, many, many discussions that are going on among the specialists as such, but to make a choice, a deliberate choice of what I think is the most uh, likely outcome for the time being, of course, because mind you, if you go to uh, 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 paleogenetics, for instance, David Reich, who is one of the, the main authors in this field, he writes simply in his, uh, in his introduction, he says, the moment you, dear reader, are reading this, much of what I'm writing now may be outdated already. So it goes very, very quickly. Uh, uh, that's not the case, uh, I fear, in 19th, 20th century history. <laughs> but in those fields it is. So um, uh, I know there are discussions. And in, my, in, in a note in the beginning of the book, I say something about it, how I've made choices. But for the rest, for the specialists, I hope they can find in my extensive uh, annotation uh, what I've done and they can, uh, they can follow this. Um, having said this, if you uh, write a narrative for not only, of course, I, I write for my uh, peers, as I said, but not only for my peers, but also for a wider audience who might be interesting, uh, which might be interesting in the history of work, 
then I've chosen to bring up as many working uh, people as possible by uh, citing them. And one of the most uh, impressive, to my mind, uh, um, uh, testimonies is this one by a man who in the 19, around 19, in the 1920s, uh, talked about his life uh, and uh, which has been recorded in his speech, uh, emphatically in his speech. Uh, and here, this man uh, recalls how he was uh, um, enslaved and finally uh, how we, he was uh, sold to uh, Americans and uh, uh, taken to America. And I hope by uh, presenting uh, working people in their own language as far as possible to, um, uh, uh, to enhance the, the understanding of uh, the, the history of work. So that's the first part of my uh, presentation. And now I come to the second part. Um, which uh, is about hunter-gatherers and reciprocity. I've said something about it already, how uh, hunter-gatherers became farmers, how farmers under certain circumstances could produce surpluses, what happened with this, these surpluses, and there are several possibilities. Um, one of the outcomes was state formation, first city formation and then state formation, and state formation leading nearly unavoidably, I fear, to slavery and enslavement. And then rather late in history, at least if you take history as long as I do, uh, rather late in history, the emergence of markets, including labor markets, and the role of monetization uh, for uh, the uh, development of wage labor. Having said that, when you have markets and you have wage labor, they, it is very clear that the outcome is not then, uh, automatic outcome is not that uh, enslavement and slave labor vanishes, not at all. You may have free and unfree labor for the market next to each other, sometimes in different polities, sometimes in the same polity. Um, then from, let's say, 1500, so maybe a, more, a little bit more familiar to most of the people who might listen to me tonight, um, is the... Um, globalization of labor relations after 1500 and the uh, emergence of what is called the industrious revolution preceding for a couple of centuries what is more uh, common uh, knowledge the industrial revolution and finally some words about automation and robotization so that's the program for the second part of my talk Um, the oldest form of division of labor, and again, 
uh, I have to remind you that the household work is at the center of my story is what has been called alloparenting. It means sharing the care of babies and small infants uh, uh, that the mother who is here at the center of this photograph from Peru uh, around uh, 1960, uh, that the mother is prepared to sharing the care of her babies with what you can see here, her mother or her mother-in-law. Of course, we do not know who she is, but that's, uh, so it's uh, over several generations. And you might say, well, what does it mean? But if we compare ourselves with our uh, um, intimate neighbors, the, uh, uh, um, uh, the, the apes, they do not do this. This is very important. Uh, this is a very important step which frees the mother for part of her time uh, for other activities. And also what um, uh, the theoreticians now think that it also enhances uh, the stability of a couple. Uh, so it's not like under uh, many primates where you have groups of females and babies and let's say the males around it looking for their chances. Uh, no, this is a, uh, the, the household formation is basic to human history and also I think to the history of work. Um, another uh, uh, feature of hunting gathering is um, that it is cooperative work. On this uh, um, uh, engravement from Australia around uh, 1800, you see uh, right down there, you see a brave hunter. And that's of course how we envisage always hunters. Eh? There is a, a, a superior human being uh, uh, killing an animal. But what you should uh, see also is all the people around and uh, making fires. So it's a really a cooperative work here uh, uh, to, to be able to um, uh, slaughter a few kangaroos and then to uh, divide the, uh, the meats among the group. Um, now we make a big jump and then we go uh, from hunting, gathering to uh, agriculture. Uh, what's interesting uh, uh, is here, and we'll see it also, also again when we talk when we'll talk about demonetization, is that um, uh, important, uh, let's say, uh, uh, innovations in uh, food management, so management of plants, but also of animals, uh, has uh, taken place independently in different parts of the world. Yeah? So there is not, not as we uh, tend to think, well, uh, uh, let's say electricity, there's one clever guy in the world who uh, uh, finds out how to use it and then others yeah, emulate it. So here you see many, many clever uh, boys and girls inventing millets or guinea f or how to uh, uh, tame guinea fowl or how to uh, 
plant potatoes or how to uh, use turkeys, etc., etc., all over the world uh, in, in different periods. At the same time, you also see combinations, of course. Uh, for instance, uh, um, uh, rice from China uh, traveling to India and the Zebu traveling from Mesopotamia to India and that kind of combinations. But what I want to stress here that, and that's, that's of, I think also an important achievement of uh, uh, global history is that you see a much more equal division of uh, human achievements all over the globe, except for that uh, um, as contrasting to that it all comes from one center and certainly from Europe. As I said, when you have agriculture, there is a possibility that under favorable circumstances, and in Egypt they were possibly, but also Mesopotamia, they were uh, very favorable that you have surpluses. And what is the importance of surpluses? That you can feed people who do not produce agricultural production. So it means labor specialization, uh, that you have artisans, for instance, who uh, uh, make furniture, or smiths, uh, um, uh, weavers, spinners, and so on. They can devote all their activity to non-agricultural work, and this is possible because agricultural, uh, agriculturalists, so peasants produce more than they need to feed themselves. The big issue, of course, is how does the produce of the peasants come to the specialists uh, uh, and how come the produce of the specialists come to the uh, 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 Peasants. Um, that uh, uh, in in a very uh, simple uh, uh, village farm uh, model, uh, like uh, it is which is known for India, that might be simple. But when you have and that happens uh, uh, slightly later, when you have cities and later on states, the, the redistribution of the agricultural produce and the redistribution of the produce of the non-agriculturalists is really a problem, which can be solved in quite a few ways. Um, one of the ways as which I describe in my book and which I see in Egypt, in Mesopotamia, in Northern India and in China is that you have uh, cities or city-states uh, where there is a central redistribution organized around a temple. So the idea or the ideology, you might say, is that we all produce for the gods, they collect it in the temple, and they redistribute it. And of course, it means that a priest caste does it. Yeah, um, That is a, um, um, an important feature because it means distribution of products without markets. Eh? And um, there, uh, this can involve uh, uh, inequality between uh, members of a society. And that has been uh, emphasized in much or most of the literature. 
But recently, we have very nice evidence from Africa that that is not necessary. There you see a big gap between the agricultural revolution on the one hand and the emergence of inequality thousands and thousands of years later on the other. So there is no automatic link, as often suggested, between agricultural surpluses and inequality. That is not necessary. Theory distribution, uh, as I showed on the map, you see in several parts of Eurasia, but I think that the uh, so-called pre-Columbian uh, civilizations in America, they uh, developed the same or similar systems. So it is, a, it is quite a universal one way of uh, organizing uh, a, um, a complicated uh, uh, civilization without markets. As I said, states uh, and we saw the emergence of states some 4,000 years ago, first in Mesopotamia, uh, uh, implicate warfare. And what do you do uh, after you have uh, won a war? Uh, what you do with the women, unfortunately, is very clear. But what you do with the men, that is a, uh, there, you, there you have the option. There, are, uh, there is a lot of evidence the way you see that uh, you kill uh, the man you have conquered, uh, either because of the ideologies that they don't deserve to, uh, to live any longer. But what you see very quickly is there is another solution. You enslave them. Uh, and that is what you see on the left-hand side in Akkad, uh, um, in Mesopotamia, and of course the most... A uh, well-known example of uh, uh, slave work is uh, the gladiators in the, the Roman Empire, the Greek uh, uh, civilization in the Roman Empire. And again, slaves and slave labor precedes thousands of years the market economy. Then another jump to 2,500 years ago, when you see what I call deep monetization. Uh, deep monetization is not necessarily the introduction uh, and you know, introduction of coins, but especially it is the introduction and production and distribution of small coins. And there is no logic, as sometimes suggested, that you do this uh, because it en enhances and facilitates trade. There is no point in buying an ox for 200 or 300 uh, small coppers. Uh, then you can do that differently. So the story that uh, uh, the exchange between uh, oxen and uh, sheep uh, became too complicated and then they invented coins, I think that is that is not the, the main story. The main story is that uh, societies became, uh, 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 that uh, uh, emerged a demand for means of exchange because, uh, yeah, uh, because uh, they were needed. And what is interesting here, and there is a parallel to the Neolithic uh, uh, revolution, that this happened at the same time in different parts of the world 
in this case in the eastern Mediterranean on the left, China in the middle, and northern India on the right-hand side. And this, I, I suggest, is on the one hand, this innovation is triggered by wage payments, but it also facilitates and enables wage payments. And I use the uh, numismatic evidence, as it's called, the evidence, archaeological evidence of uh, uh, coin finds, uh, especially for parts of the world where we have no or hardly any written evidence. So I use this as a, a fossil guide for wage labor, the emergence and also the disappearance of wage labor because that happens too. So then we come to uh, what I said uh, next to each other, agri commercial agriculture with wage laborers, as you see here in the late middle age medieval Europe and with unfree laborers, as you see here in 17th century uh, Suriname. And then, um, uh, the so-called industrious revolution. What we mean is the following. The, it is a term uh, uh, coined by uh, Jan de Vries uh, from uh, California. Uh, uh, what we mean is a, an intrinsic problem of peasants. Peasants have to work very hard in summer in, uh, in our uh, part of the world. And in winter, you have hardly anything to do. And this, the, uh, the innovation simply is that peasants start doing different things, start weaving, spinning, making nails, making wooden furniture, and so on and so forth. And this you see uh, from around 1500 at the same time in China, Japan, Europe, to a certain extent also uh, in um, uh, India. And that is called the Industrious Revolution, um, which for the history of work is as important, I think, as the famous industrial revolution, where we go from muscle power to steam power. I don't have to say too much about that. Um, the outcome of it is that an increasing part of the uh, population is engaged in wage labor, and especially in wage labor outside the household. That is, that is crucial. And then I talked uh, before about uh, social control, about who is lazy and who is doing his best. This uh, problem, of course, arises very prominently in factories. And there you see, and there I uh, refer again uh, to uh, the Tillys, there you see several uh, uh, um, ways of enhancing productivity, uh, which is not only wage payments, but also uh, what you see on the left-hand side, uh, um, all kind of medals and uh, non-pecuniary uh, uh, remuneration, but of course also force. So there are three types of uh, uh, labor motivation, and we see them up until now. It's always a mix between the three of them and think of your own uh, situation and you can easily find that they all apply. Finally, automation and robotization, uh, which I had to discuss and which I discuss at, at, at the end of the book, 
and especially the uh, the many predictions that we have had since Jules Verne uh, in the 1870s that within let's say 20 or 50 or whatever years uh, work would stop and we all would uh, wouldn't know what to do with our leisure time. Uh, what I think is that these predictions are not only always wrong, but it's also very unlikely and that there is a lot of evidence in uh, modern history that to the contrary, we are working more and more and harder and harder, uh, uh, whatever these predictions say. To come to my conclusion. Um, I want to go back to the starting point and the definition of work of the Tillys. And I think uh, they've uh, uh, proven to be very uh, frugal for my, for my book, for writing my book. Uh, they've been an inspiration from the beginning until the end. Yet, at the end, I thought there is more to it than the very useful uh, delimitations they uh, propose. And I come to three conclusions. First, work provides us a living. And that's, of course, what you see in their definition very clearly. But it provides us with much more. It also provides us with self-respect and with meaning. Because we, uh, and think about it yourself, we uh, derive much of our respect, or if not all of our self-respect, from the respect of others, and others respect us because of our achievements, which are mainly in work. It might be also a nice car and so on, but in the end, it's our work. And this self-respect provides us with meaning. So that's also why I think that the history of work is so central to history in at large. Work, secondly, is not an individual activity. Of course, technically it's an individual activity, but in, uh, in reality, none of us or hardly any of us work on our own. We work with others. And that's not only vertically, as often uh, emphasized in uh, labor history. So it is the relation between the boss and the worker and so on, but also horizontally, we work with others and their uh, opinions and their attitude matters maybe as much or more than the relation between with the boss. Finally, while working, we aim at a fair remuneration according to our efforts. And I think that reminds us uh, to the 98% of our history as described before. Well, that is the way I have tried to uh, summarize my book and I hope it, uh, it's a bit clear and it, uh, it can uh, elicit some questions or some comments. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lo. Yeah, that's extremely illuminating um, and, and very interesting. 
enormously ambitious as well. Um, and congratulations also on the first animated title page that I, for one, have ever seen, uh, <laughs> which is a, a fantastic piece of art as well. Um, we are going to have um, gen uh, some time for questions in a few minutes, but before um, we open the floor, um, I'm very pleased that we're joined by Professor Sarah Horrell. Um, Sarah is one of the professors in the Department of Economic History. Um, Sarah's been working for a long time on work, on wages, on uh, the family economy, and these different aspects of uh, work that relate very much to the way in which uh, you've been uh, discussing. Although her own work is not over, I think, 700,000 years, but more over the last, last few centuries, uh, particularly the 19th century. Um, so Sarah, let me hand over to you for uh, a commentary on um, Jan's book from a different Thank you, Patrick. Yes, thank you. Um, let me just, uh, sorry, there we go. Oh. Right. Yes. Um, Jan, a fantastic book. I mean, it's, it's, the coverage is just huge. It's immense. The scope and reach is, is just amazing. And the amount of material you marshal here uh, is, you know, uh, is, is fantastic. You've taken us on a journey from earliest times, the hunter-gatherers to nascent specialising in monetised cities, right up to current day concerns about the future of work. And I suspect that's something that people will want to talk about quite a bit in the discussion. As you've shown us, the experience is worldwide and you've covered a huge diversity of arrangement of the forms of work there. So what are the key messages? I think you actually articulated that in that last slide there. And I've, I've sort of reiterating it here because it, it forms part of where I want to go with the discussion. One of the things I think that does come out of the book is that there's nothing predetermined about the direction in which forms of work are going to take over time, that it, it's, it happens. I mean, there may be features that, that um, determine where, where it all goes, but there's nothing, there's no straightforward linear path, I think is how I put it. The other, as you pointed out, is that humans are basically social and cooperative beings who follows these principles of reciprocity and fairness in thinking about the returns to our labor. And these are both really optimistic things when we think about how to negotiate the future and the challenges of the future, things like artificial intelligence, because it does mean that it's in your view, we've got um, plenty to think about and plenty of positive ways of actually thinking about how we negotiate this future. I quote here from, from you in page 14 here, the universal appeal of fairness seems to be prevailing now and, and seeing this is the way we want to go forward. So what is the left to ask about this? And I feel there's, there's three areas for further discussion that would be really interesting to think a bit more about. One is how this social history fits or contradicts the nature of work as understood in economic analysis, because I think your work actually presents quite a strong challenge to an economic view of work. I'd also like to look more at gender and women's experience of work. And just very briefly at the end, think a little bit, or at least ask you about how the, the relationship between the form work takes and economic growth. But let's start with economics. And just to sort of recap something we all know, the guiding principles in economics here, is that you have an individual who's maximizing their own well-being, who is optimizing within constraints and um, is essentially doing the best for themselves that they can. But within that model, the benefit of work is essentially material consumption and the cost is reduced leisure, it's time versus goods. And whilst individuals might differ, we find the main drivers of this, at least in market economies, are economic variables, wages and unearned income. 
Of course, this can be extended and economists have extended it to encompass other forms of work, things like slavery, second serfdom that you talk about in the book. So it's not just purely a market um, analysis here. And uh, people like Gary Becker, of course, cover it to, to cover household work and various forms of household labor too. So how's your work? Well, your, your work, I think, is very much challenging this notion of rational economic men and on two main fronts that, as you said at the end there, rather than having disutility, work very much has a positive value to us that we measure our own worth through work, through our social interactions in the workplace, and this all gives meaning to our lives. And the other, I think, although you didn't ex uh, explicitly say this, is that we're not selfish utility maximizing individuals. Instead, we are cooperative and will work more collectively, and particularly collectively to operationalize our underlying notions of fair returns to labor, collective action there. Again, I quote, the principle of reciprocity is at the basis of human work relations. Now, I must say, I actually agree with you on the first one. I, I actually do think work definitely has a positive value. And if you, I mean, as, as people have done, look at surveys, for instance, of the unemployed and, and really analyse how they feel about their position, it is clear that, that work does have meaning and positive value. I'm less convinced, though, about the... Um, being cooperative and not selfish. And as I understood in, in the book, your argument in part is that the settled farming practices yield surpluses, as, as you point out in the, the presentation. These are collected and redistributed in these tributary redistributive societies. And you have what you describe in the book as aggrandizers that oversee the process. But there's relatively little, I think, said about the people that are the aggrandizers. And I know in the presentation, um, you said here in Africa, you're not seeing people actually benefiting or uh, individually benefiting from this. And so it's not necessarily the case. But in a lot of the world, I think you are seeing that people set themselves above others. The aggrandizers are, in some sense, capturing more of this surplus than maybe they're due. And you don't really sort of mention, you know, what, what type of people are these? And I think if we're honest, and maybe I revealed too much about myself here, but very few of us would opt to be the common labourer, the peasant, over the aggrandizer, the person, the chief, the king, the priest that's see, overseeing this, this controlling the people, able to um, allocate the surplus. And I guess what I'm trying to say here is I think in terms of the actions you see, that you're seeing the selfish utilizing, utility maximizing individual alive and well in this account, that, that cooperation may be, well, as I say, your work presents this real challenge to uh, economic interpretations of, of motivations work and individual motivation. And, and I'd like you know, the interest in the discussion as to, to where this really leads us. Similarly, with industrial action, you talk about collective action, you talk about uh, individuals acting together to achieve fairness, to um, go on strike and things, to articulate their notions of fairness here. But there's a lot of evidence, both historically and in sort of economic work and so on, that collective action gains often act to the detriment of outsiders, the people that are unskilled, uh, women, religious and ethnic minorities. And so again, I suppose I'm wondering how far our notions of reciprocity and fairness actually stretch. I mean, is it just something that applies to our own group that we identify with? Or is it something that we see for humankind more generally? 
So that's my first thing is wanting to actually think a bit more um, about really motivations for work and, and how individuals operate. The second is gender. And as you said at the beginning, your, your productive work is basically defined as all human pursuits apart from free time or leisure, with non-work obligations also being distinct from leisure. So engaging in networks, social relations and so on is, is a part of work. And it's clear, and you're clear about this too, that then women are constituting at least half of the world's labour throughout history. Yet women's experience, explicit experience, is referred to on just four occasions through the book. And I'm afraid I, I'm a bit of a nerd here. I counted up the pages. And I have to say, for a book that's subtitled A New History of Humankind, it does seem to me to be a bit of an omission to devote just 2% of the content to womankind. Now, actually, you might say to me, well, does this matter? If, if women's experience is the same as men's, or if all humans have the same experience, then you maybe don't need to explicitly look at women. But I'm going to suggest, and this is what I want to sort of bring out a little bit in the discussion, is you know, what perspective does this miss? Is it missing a perspective by not looking at women explicitly? And so I've got a few, a few pointers. I mean, there's obviously a lot that could be said on this, but there's just a few aspects I want to try and pull out in this discussion. I think... My interpretation of what you're saying in the book, at least, is you're saying early on women's position arises from their need to look after children and their responsibilities for childbearing and child rearing. And that in settled agricultural societies, this, this means that they're tied close to the home, that farming becomes their activity while the men can go off and hunt um, their, their kangaroos. And yet, of course, this is, this is a form of biological determinism, really, isn't it? It's, it's been very much argued against by many authors from many different perspectives. You see women as being valued in the society. I think you, you point up that bride price becomes paid in settled agricultural societies um, and, and see this as being part of this value and maybe even reciprocity of some form. But I think you could interpret this in a different way as well. I mean, you could see it as being that women are effectively owned by men and that this ownership is patrilocal. They're, they're sold, effectively sold by their fathers to their husbands. They move from their father's places to their husband's places. And so I suppose I'm suggesting that looking at women um, as, in, as, as a, a separate type of experience is, is, is important if you think that patriarchy is a factor in terms of, of women's experience of their position in work as defined by you and the type of labours that they do. You do comment that, that guilds tend to exclude women, that collective action can actually be excluding women. Um, you don't, for me, I'd want more discussion of, of how economic and other factors play into this. I'm sort of thinking of like the 15th century decline in trade and the economic retraction, which, which sort of promote this removal of unfair competition. But also within that discussion, it'd be worth knowing why women are seen as particularly problematic in terms of the sort of competition they pre uh, present. But it's not just about response to sort of economic um, pressures, I think, because women are not just excluded from trades in this period, or at least in North, Northern Europe and, and certainly in England. They're prevented from taking on education. They're uh, not allowed to own property, or at least married women aren't. 
And so there's various aspects of life, social life, um, community life that women become excluded from. And so they do end up, um, at least in this argument, uh, laboring in domestic responsibilities. And so what I'm really saying is, is, doesn't this actually present a slightly different story about not just reciprocity, but women actually um, being in certain positions uh, because of lack of outside options, that we can't see this as exercising of choice, but there's a, a lack of options available to them. As you mentioned, women do come into the labour market in the industrious and industrial revolutions, but they're also returned to the home um, in, after both these phases to some extent. And certainly in many accounts, collective action by men is complicit in this returning women to the home. Um, we find obviously trade unions uh, as development in the 19th century, demands for a family wage over many places and things, pushing women uh, back into the home. We also see them drawn in and out in various cycles subsequently. So, for instance, in wars and when there's labour shortages, women enter the labour market, as you point out in the book. When there's high unemployment, when there's the um, espousing of family values, they tend to be pushed back into the home. So a Marxist interpretation of this would be that women actually really have been constituting a reserve army of labour that serves the needs of the capitalist economy that they're being pushed around or pulled around by the needs of the economy and that it isn't really um, their notion of self-worth or self-esteem or what they gain from work that's governing labour force participation. In the book, you, you state that women shared in the gains that the labour movement have achieved in constraining what I'm describing here as the exploitation by capital and that this has given them greater gender equality. But I'm sort of wondering whether you couldn't also argue that greater gender equality has resulted from women's fight against men rather than from men's fight against capital. So I, I really you know, welcome in the discussion a much more sort of um, thought about whether we don't need some separate experience of women to, to flesh out in some senses or some aspects this story of work. And finally, just briefly, the relationship of work to the wider economy. And, and I think we're, we're both agreed that, that, that you know, what, what you've shown in the book very clearly is, is there is nothing deterministic about the direction in which work develops. But I do wonder whether you're not in the book quite often showing that economic change can, comes first and that that is the, the impetus to um, the form of work, a change in the form of work. And then we maybe need to think about what causes the economic change. And I suppose I'm again sort of starting, you know, harping on about um, motivations, what motivates individuals. I mean, if it is sort of, uh, you know, what, what causes um, exploration and experimentation and invention? And if it's personal gain, if it's ideas of um, some form of, I, I put it in inverted commas, greed, but gain, personal gain, then does that challenge the ideas of, reciprocity and, and um, cooperation being at the root of, sort of human nature in a way. And I also want to ask whether there's geographic and economic patterns uh, that determine the form of work adopted. You, you sort of mentioned this when we talk about, um, when you were talking about slavery and the second serfdom and indeed types of marriage patterns and moves to, to pastoral agriculture, that there are certain sort of geographic and economic conditions that favor 
the emergence of these. Um, and I'm wondering if, if whether seeing patterns in this can actually help us come back to that earlier question about the options we have for determining the future of work. Can we actually maybe see something a bit more predictable about where we go and what options are available to us? There's been a huge amount in this book. There's absolutely loads to discuss and I look forward to, to us all doing this. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sarah. That was incredibly uh, rich discussion with lots and lots of points for Ian to be thinking about and uh, uh, probably, probably uh, a long cup of coffee for that one, right? To, uh, to consider all of those different things. Um, I, I think it's quite important that we um, actually get a chance for our audience to, to ask questions. Um, and we have got um, an extraordinary number of questions in, in the Q&A. Um, and as, as I think uh, um, you'll have seen among the audience that you, you can upvote. So we're seeing a number of different questions getting, uh, getting quite a lot of traction. Um, and I'm interested perhaps to put one of the two of these to Jan now, if, we, if you wouldn't mind. Um, uh, so Jan, um, one question that I think is, 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 is very prominent here in, in different forms is really what I was thinking of as the kind of Keynes question, right? Um, you know, as, as he who puts it, the idea used to be that if we got richer and we automated more work, we could work less. And instead of that, we end up working more. Um, and so I think the question is really, do you see any prospect for breaking this cycle? And I, I suppose you might add to that, do you think we should be looking to break the cycle given how you connect work and identity and respect? Um, so let me put you that particular question about, about the future, which is obviously not your area of expertise as a historian, but uh, let's ask you. Exactly, I'm a historian. But uh, first, uh, before reacting to you, I'd like to thank Sarah very, very much for this rich comment. Really, well, we should discuss it uh, at length, but this is, these are exactly Absolutely. great points. And, uh, um, uh, but anyway, so um, to uh, your question, um, I think if we go to the, the present and let's say the, the last few decades, why are people, especially in this part of the world, we should stress that, uh, are uh, working uh, harder than um, making at least more hours, especially if you define it per household. Huh? Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, let's say man and woman together in a classic household, they are making more uh, working hours these days than their parents used to do uh, a few uh, decades ago. I think it has to do uh, uh, with their desire and a very understandable desire to maintain at least the same level of prosperity as their parents had. But it also has, uh, has to do with, I think, the expectations in which we all have grown up, the expectation of improvement over the generations. And that is something which is uh, uh, what seems to be stopping now, at least for, for a lot of people. And at least what people try to achieve is not to fall back. Uh, so I think these are the, the, the two, uh, the, the two motivations why people 
uh, work so hard, well, to, let's say, to maintain the position and to maintain the hope that somehow they can improve. So they share the same, I think, values as their parents and maybe their grandparents do. But this, this is uh, this is what to have, what they have to do to uh, to achieve this. So, do you, I mean, do you think that this this value, this value of improvement, this hope for improvement, is in some ways a little bit in tension with the idea of work as a as a fundamental source of of respect and identity? And that one is. is one is satisfying, one is one is advancing. Yep. I think that's that is definitely so because you also might say this uh, the emphasis uh, emphasis that I put on respect self respect etc. You also might say that's a trap. Eh? Uh, if we are so much dependent on it, we have to do so much uh, to uh, for it. Eh? Uh, and um, um, yeah, yeah. I think that's really interesting. I'm going to bring in, um, I'm going to merge a couple of questions here, which have been very popular about, about technology. Um, I mean, it's very striking in the story that you've told us that technology is really fundamental to many of the changes, the steps in work. And I think that several people, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at Hugh James's question, Rebecca Magor's question, are really interested in how technology might change work now. Um, AI, I mean, this this changes or this is, is, is clearly encroaching, I think, as Hugh puts it, on how uh, individuals wake, work, uh, relate to each other in work. Um, the migration to remote working is changing how we work together. Um, I, th I think the question is, on the one hand, do you see the current set of technological changes people are experiencing as significant changes to work in, 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 in of the scale that perhaps you've been discussing in your book? Um, and do you think that um, there will need to be a set of changes to respond to them in, in how work is organized and how we fit work into our life? It, it certainly does continuously. Um, but uh, we should not equate this with diminishing work. Eh? That is something totally different. Uh, so uh, it, it changes continuously. And I think the, the great challenge is to uh, how to maintain a certain degree of autonomy in our work. That is, that's uh, basic. That, that's basic now, but it also will be basic in, in the face of uh, uh, artificial intelligence and automation. And um, um, there we come to uh, may, maybe to a point that Sarah raised uh, about, uh, let's say, selfishness, but you also might say it's uh, ambition, uh, uh, ambition to Im improve ourselves. Um, that is, uh, I, I hope uh, I'm not denying this in my book, and I'm certainly not denying it as such. I think this is this is basic to human beings. Being human beings are uh, uh, have initiative, want to improve, and you also might call that selfish. The only problem is, of course, that they cannot do it on their own uh, as, as an individual against economic theory, uh, the presuppositions of economic theory. We cannot. So they have to do it within a group. The smallest group is the household. And then 
what kind of possibilities do they have? It, it depends on their gender eh? uh, uh, and also, also uh, outside. So, um, and that also uh, is the question because that is part and parcel of our human nature. I mean, cooperation is part and parcel of our human nature, but initiative and selfishness is at well as well. They don't exclude each other, I think. Eh? So, and if, um, if if let's say the, the, the positive side is, is it a, a certain degree of autonomy, uh, uh, which is very important for self-respect, uh, uh, but also, uh, the uh, satisfaction of doing something in the way you think you can do it best. What is the, 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 uh, the challenge of this uh, uh, in the face of uh, artificial intelligence and so on? And there is, I think, a very big challenge. Yeah? If you think about uh, uh, certain images we know uh, from China, uh, where Big Brother is really watching you and correcting you, uh, and so on. Um, at least that's what I privately think. But again, I'm a historian. I'm not a futurologist. But uh, yeah. I mean, let me let me bring in, I guess, the second part of this question about how these things might change, and that is, I think, about whether or not something like a universal basic income might be come necessary and whether you'd think that was desirable in this kind of context given what what i i think you're telling us here which is kind of which is quite an optimistic story about work as a source of identity and um you know as, as a focus for human ambition for striving you know, a way to find ourselves right and in that kind of world uh, the world that we're entering would you be an advocate for a for a ubi would you think that was a, a useful solution to the problem of work <laughs> I'm very hesitant about this uh, uh, because on the one hand, of course, I want everybody to have a decent living. Yeah? Uh, why should I have that right? Or why should others not? There is no moral argument conceivable for this, even for the most lazy of my co-humans. Uh, I want them to have, to have a good minimum. Why am I hesitant? Exactly because of what we were just uh, discussing. Eh? You, uh, uh, the risk of taking away initiative, the, the risk of taking away autonomy. And uh, I don't have a solution for it. I, I, I quote uh, several interesting studies on Britain, uh, which, have, which have done uh, on this, uh, which have been done on this point. Uh, I think if, if we are talking about uh, uh, social si uh, challenges, this is one of the, the, the main ones. Eh? In a way, of course, we have we have already kind of mixed system. Eh? Nobody, uh, well, hardly anybody is. It's not necessary to die in the streets uh, as it, it used to happen uh, in. In, in many big cities in India uh, uh, until uh, until recently. Uh, there's no need. So we have a kind of uh, welfare state, a very minimal welfare state in a lot of countries. Uh, but extending to what extent you can extend it at the cost of taking away initiative and, uh, and autonomy, that's the big question. 
Thank you. It's a really, it's a very, very interesting debate. I think that's one we're going to come back to again and again. Um, I'm going to stop asking you about the future. Um, but I am going to raise a, a question that has been put in a couple of different ways um, in the questions. Um, and um, I suppose it's really around, um, again, people asking about the optimism that I think comes out in, in your view of this. Um, and uh, Richard Stevens framed it like this. Um, how can you talk about the universal appeal of fairness? when he would suggest that's the last thing that's happened in history in the world of work and certainly today, because effort does not match reward. Um, and I think we see this in um, another question by Elka Anola, commenting that the, the hardest workers are the lowest paid. So, I mean, how, how would you see that kind of critique? I think it's one that's very common today. If we think about payment for social care and so on in the context of the framework that you're, you're setting out here, where it's, I, it, you give us a sense perhaps of a, a more optimistic view of, of work, reward, fairness. Um, um, it, I don't deny what, what, uh, what, these, uh, what these people say, but I'm saying that this is what we are striving at. Eh? That is very different of what reality is. Or, or to put it in a negative way, uh, uh, it is, uh, I think, historical evidence does not show that if, uh, uh, if you have long enough uh, such an incongruent uh, relation between efforts and uh, uh, remuneration, that we think, well, in the end, okay, okay, that's how it has to be. No, no, that's not, that, that is not our nature. Uh, and uh, we also uh, should uh, uh, take a historical view that uh, although there is so much rotten in our state, uh, if, if you talk about this, that um, it is in many respects a big improvement of what we have seen 100 and 150 years ago. And this does not only go for, uh, for Europe or the North Atlantic, but especially also goes for uh, China. Uh, if you see there the improvements, they are so immense over the last uh, decades. Uh, I'm not advocating China as the most ideal society. To the contrary, but this is what we also should see. I mean, we should, we should try to avoid a, a too narrow view of, of the, 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 the um, uh, deterioration that we see in our own society here in the West, which I cannot deny and which I also describe in the book and which I deplore. Uh, but I, I think that there is enough evidence that uh, we do, even if we uh, experience it, we do not agree. And I think that political developments in the US uh, and the, uh, uh, the success of both big parties in the US explain a lot of what I'm saying. Thank you. Um, it's really interesting, particularly to hear the kind of questions in response to, to the, the, the overall framing and then set like this against this kind of longer term story that you're saying. So let me, let me turn to a couple of the questions that are really trying to ask about this very long run, which I think is one of the kind of most striking features of the book. Um, and let me, let me pose you two, because I think they'll, they work together. The first is from uh, Felipe uh, 
Canchini, I apologize for my pronunciation. Um, and, and Felipe, who's an alumni of LSE, um, asks, um, after hunter-gathering, um, whether you'd say there's any particular moment in history in which the accumulation of wealth became very predominant, whether there's a kind of a moment after hunter-gathering where things change, I think, in our accumulation, our attitudes to wealth. Um, and the second, which um, I think comes quite interestingly, and you, you know, I think either of these would, would be really interesting to hear about, um, which asks from, from Kirsten Potts, um, asking us about um, how, as work becomes monetized, um, how the creation of payment changes the dynamic of work. I think they really want, I think Kirsten really wants to get more of a sense about this shift from domestic, from the household into a more monetized um, situation. Yeah. Um, Patrick, do I understand the first question rightly, that it is about accumulation among human uh, hunter-gatherers? Um, I think it's after hunter-gathering. So oh. any, any moment after hunter-gathering. I think that kind of, I think you made very clear that there's a shock after hunter-gathering where wealth starts to be accumulated and whether there's a moment after that when accumulation becomes most very, very predominant is the term. Yeah, yeah that, so that is, uh, if, if we date the, um, uh, the um, uh, uh, agricultural revolution to 12,000 years ago, then uh, what I gather from the literature is that after a few thousand years, and especially in the Middle East, what they call the Fertile Crescent, so that's Mesopotamia, Syria, Egypt, that there you see a substantial uh, 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 possibility of uh, uh, surpluses in agriculture. Huh? Um, and, and then, uh, let's say, the question how to deal with that without having a market. Yeah, and then if, if I can go then uh, over to uh, markets itself, so that's the emergence of this deep monetization. What it means is, on the one hand, and that is uh, maybe uh, sounds a bit uh, unlikely, but it is in a way a liberation of wage labor, because it means if a wage labor receives coins instead of food, he or she can decide what to do with the coins. Uh, coins are, in a way, they are neutral. Eh? And they leave the, the, the freedom to the receiver how to spend the coins. Eh? So um, uh, I think, in a way, it's, you can see it as an emancipation of wage labor. Having said that, of course, everything depends on how many coins you get for how much work, et cetera, et cetera. But if you contrast remuneration in kind, which mostly means a dwelling from your boss, protection from your boss, food from your boss, it also means complete dependence on your boss, which sometimes I explain it to my students as follows. Uh, the, uh, it is you can compare it to uh, a customer who has been uh, visiting a sex worker. He mostly he will pay in cash. Why? Because he and also she wants to end this uh, relationship after this. Eh? So it is that kind of independence I'm talking about. 
Okay, this is a, a fascinating and really, really interesting. Um, obviously, I'm, we've got a huge range of different questions. So let me let me pick, I think probably this um, might be one of the last ones that we pick, but um, it's interesting um, and it comes back to, I think one of the comments that, that Sarah was making. So this, and this is from John Bryant. He's really asking about the work undertaken by the rentier class um, who are earning an income with little effort. Um, and as, as, as he puts it, as the super rich get richer through the accumulation of capital, how can we improve the rewards for, for real work? Um, so I think there's two sides to this, right? I mean, how do you deal with the rentier class in thinking like this? Are they working in the way that you're thinking about work? Um, and is there a way, given the importance of capital and returns to capital, um, to, to address, to deal with the problem this might be causing for, for real work? Well, it's, it's of course, the, the, again, the political question in our society or in any society we live in, uh, what we, uh, how we think that we should rein in the ag aggrandizers. Eh? That is because, as I said, this is, this is human nature. Eh? You want to, uh, uh, you want to improve yourself, and you are not, uh, you are quite uh, capable of doing this at the cost of somebody else. It is, do your fellow humans, do they allow you, yes or no? And then it is not so important whether the rentier class works or not. Uh, we have the classical uh, uh, example, especially in the early modern period, where they did not work. But these days, the multi-billionaires, etc., they work, at least what I read about from them, most of them, they work like hell. Eh? It is, but this, that, that does not entitle them to, uh, to this uh, uh, completely uh, crazy uh, uh, relation between efforts and remuneration, eh? uh, because there are also a lot of poor people who work like hell. So that, that, that does not matter. Eh? And it, but it's interesting that the rich people now, especially also uh, uh, as exposed to the media, they work like hell because it, they think it gains them respect. Eh? It does not gain respect if you do not work. I, I think this, this is the best proof of what I wanted to say about this other aspect of work. They don't have to, but they do. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. It actually touches very much on a, on a couple of uh, final questions about how our views on work actually change how important we find work to be. I mean, that decision among these kind of incredibly wealthy um, investors with tons of money, as you say, they don't have to work, but nowadays they work where once they would have chosen not to. Um, and I, th I think it's very interesting. A number of people are asking here about how changing views on work have in impacted on, on how important we find work to be. And I suppose that's, that's kind of a, almost a final question for you. Do you think, to what extent do you think your own views on work and the value it has had in your life inflects your perception of the value of work um, in the book? Because you clearly it love does. your work. Unavoidably it does, as, as it does that I'm an optimist. Yeah? I can't help it, I can't change myself in this respect, and I should be quite open about that. And so uh, let's 
let's hope that a, a good professional pessimist will write a smashing uh, a reaction to my book and maybe then in between we'll uh, we'll find a, a nice uh, meeting ground no that that's just, uh, i think it goes for the for at, at least for the social sciences and and i think history is part of the social sciences that's unavoidable uh, but i hope that in my book I've, uh, maybe not enough, but at least I've shown these, uh, well, these conflicting uh, uh, tendencies that we have. And if I may come back to one very uh, important remark by Sarah also, that if we, uh, if we engage in collective action, we immediately, but it, is all, it, it stems already from, from our basis in the household, we immediately shape insiders, outsiders. That is, that is the great trap of any, um, uh, of any uh, uh, collective action. And that's also why uh, trade unions, however important I consider them to, to be, and I'm quite serious about it, why they always have to guard against it. Huh? And you see it in the immigration question, huh? how easily this kind of uh, collective action, these kind of organizations can fall into this trap. Australia, labor history of Australia is an excellent example of it. Eh? Uh, the whites against the rest, yeah? Or the white Anglo-Saxons or the white, uh, white Protestant Anglo-Saxons, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Eh? That is because we think group-wise, we don't think we do, but we do, eh? because we have been raised in households. That's the first group. We think as members of a group, and that is we always are inclined to exclude others. And that does not, that, that is also, of course, part of the total human uh, history, because also hunter-gatherers, these small groups, they also were including the members, excluding others. It's also in a way unavoidable. And then, well, maybe that is maybe one of the, the main messages. Well, I'm not a great philosopher, uh, let, let alone a theoretician, eh? but these tensions that we see in our behavior as we have inherited uh, them uh, over the generations. And we have to be aware of it if we think about work as it has, has uh, developed and as it will develop. And also what Sarah um, uh, underlined, I think rightly so, that there is history is not predetermined. As I say in my book, in general, we see over the last 150 years that slavery has, uh, has gone down. Nevertheless, we have, we have seen episodes not too long ago in which slavery was there, live, uh, kicking, uh, alive and kicking in Germany, in Russia, in China, and it could happen again. That is, uh, so being an optimist, <laughs> which again, I cannot avoid, I'm not uh, blind to these possibilities. And that's maybe that's the, the, the main message of the book. Although I've, um, well, uh, I've not put it in that way, eh? that we are aware of all these possibilities if we consider it. And then I think, again, to come back to one point of uh, Sarah, eh? that's also the challenge to economic economics as 
a, uh, as a science, as a discipline, eh? that we should be should look much broader than we used to do in this individualistic market oriented with and a lot of other presuppositions and then then the, the 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 game can start no the game of history is much much wider well thank you um we i i've always I'm always on the side of the optimists, I have to say. Um, and we've been members of a very privileged group here this evening to have the chance to hear you uh, present your work and discuss it. Um, so thank you very much, Jan, for uh, a wonderful talk. Um, thank you, Sarah, also for a, for a, a rigorous and engaging uh, response to it. And thank you to all of our audience here for what's been an amazing array of questions um, that have have provoked, I think, a very, very interesting conversation here about the past, the present and the future of work. Um, so thank you very much for joining us. Um, you can find more information about the department um, and our activities on our website. And the next um, event that we'll be holding uh, will be the Epstein Lecture by Philip Eger on the effects of immigration restrictions on the economy on the 10th of March uh, this year. Um, Philip, this is our lecture for uh, very prominent, very distinguished uh, junior member of uh, the discipline. So please, I look forward to joining you there. So it just remains for me to say thank you once again to Jan for a fabulous lecture. Um, and thank you and good night. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.